Shut up and sit down. It is mundanity that heightens the suspense. You know that we can almost project ourselves into the character. Welcome to Popcraft, where we are top TV screenplays find your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert, and this week we have a very special Halloween episode of Popcraft, where in fact we will be discussing the original Halloween from 1978, and specifically about what's unique about the movie. I mean, a lot of it doesn't seem very unique nowadays because it spawned so many imitators, so many uh, pale imitators of really the wonderful uh, originality in the screenplay. And we're also going to talk about how subversive really it is to this day, just in terms of, you know, this is an iconic movie, a really wonderful, very compelling movie that people rewatch over and over. And, you know, it has seen so many sequels. Most recently, of course, Halloween Ends, which you can go see in theaters today or on Peacock. God, I sound like I'm advertising it, but I, uh, I wish I was. I wish I could say they were paying me for it, but they are not, alas. But anyway, Halloween really ignores, probably not on purpose, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, the writers of Halloween. I don't think we're intentionally trying to ignore a lot of screenwriting dogma, a lot of what you're taught in film school or in screenwriting books, whether it's Sid Fields or, you know, whatever. You know, a, a lot of the ideas about what makes a good screenplay are just flat out, they don't relate to the original Halloween. Um, they're not reflective of what makes it compelling. The movie is just, you know, you could say, you know, you could argue by traditional standards is a weak screenplay, but I really don't think that's the case as evidenced just by how long lasting its impact has been and how many people still love it to this day. And, you know, I, I think that gets to something we talked about in the first season of Popcraft, which is that no movie is objectively bad. There is no objective merit by which to judge a writing quality you really have to come at it on the merits of the movie itself and what it's trying to accomplish and whether or not it, it, tries, it succeeds in accomplishing those things. So before we get into what it is Halloween is trying to accomplish and how it succeeds in what it is trying to accomplish, I do want to have a, a small correction for last week. We talked about the mice quotient. Uh, go check out last episode if you want that in more details. But I said it was invented by Mary Robinette Kowal. In fact, it, uh, the mice quotient was first coined and invented by Orson Scott Card, uh, the sci-fi author behind Ender's Game. So that is a small correction. Mice Quotient was made by Orson Scott Card. Now with that said, let's jump into Halloween. And one of the things I need to highlight is Halloween really focuses on emotion. Like many horror movies, it focuses on fear, it focuses on terror, it focuses on suspense. And we're going to be defining suspense the way Alfred Hitchcock defined it. Now, if you're new to Popcraft, you know, we'll catch you up to speed, but this is something we've talked about in season one several times, where Alfred Hitchcock defines suspense as this bomb under the table, right? So if you have two men coming together to eat dinner and suddenly their table blows up, that's a surprise, but it's a really weak twist. It doesn't really stick with the audience. The audience will be like, whoa, what the hell, a bomb blew up, but it's not that impactful. But if you have the audience see someone plant the bomb under the table, and then you have the two men come to dinner and they do not know the bomb is present, then you create suspense. The audience leans forward and is waiting for that bomb to explode. They're waiting to see what happens. You can just get it. It's inherently, it is suspenseful. That is exactly the function of the slasher, Michael Myers in Halloween. The slasher, and frankly, every 
horror movie. I mean, it's it's how any given, you know, whether it's ghosts, you know, haunted house, whether it's slasher, whether it's a monster, you know, the alien in the original alien, xenomorph, it it's all about creating suspense, putting the audience on the edge of their seat by putting that bomb under the table of the killer, the threat, and then having the characters unknowingly walk into that threat. And that really is the focus of slasher structure, how I'm defining it, is it puts suspense above character development. While most stories would say, you know, you need to have an active protagonist, you need to have your protagonist drive the story, oftentimes within slasher structure, the protagonist, you know, our POV character is not active, not even remotely. In fact, is is if they're ever active at all, it's only in the third act when they're confronted with the slasher. Often it's a sort of slice of, uh, slice of life narrative as the tension gradually builds, as the stakes are raised. And our final girl, our POV, our hero, is really just kind of there for most of the movie. And it is in that mundanity that heightens the suspense, you know, that we can almost project ourselves into the character, where we may not be some larger-than-life, you know, superhero going out trying to fight a bad guy. It's, it's that much scarier that we can see, oh, you know, Laurie Strode, this ordinary girl, doesn't know what she's walking into. She doesn't know that she's in a movie. She's just, this is just another Halloween for her. And little does she know, she is faithfully connected to really a force of nature, someone who's not given much character, much personality at all, and is all the scarier for it, who's very rarely on screen. Michael Myers, the slasher villain, who really drives the story. It really is the villain, the antagonist, who drives the story and the slasher structure. Now, Halloween does have a protagonist who pursues something, a more active character in Dr. Loomis. And so it is worth noting that. But that said, Dr. Loomis, while he spends the whole movie trying to find Michael, investigating what happened, tracking Michael down, and that does ultimately culminate in the third act, he doesn't succeed in a lot of things, really. Like, and in fact, we'll get to and criticize, you know, Halloween is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, even in what it is attempting to do. I think it, it stumbles a couple times. But Dr. Loomis kind of does the same thing throughout the movie. In his investigation, he kind of has to tread water a lot of the time. And so even then, the person who is constantly escalating the stakes, the, the person who is constantly making decisions that shape the movie is the slasher themselves. The slasher is the most active character, which is, again, particularly interesting because like Jaws, the slasher is more often than not off screen. We do not see them. Our emotional connection to them is to their presence more so than to their physical being. And that is what makes them so terrifying. That is what makes Michael Myers so terrifying. It's not when he's on screen usually. It's when we don't see him, but we know he's just off the corner or he's just out of focus. Now, before we dig too deep into exactly how Halloween approaches its slasher structure and what exactly that looks like concretely on the page, I do want to touch on the MICE quotient a little more. So MICE, again, is an acronym that stands for milieu, inquiry, character, and event. And again, go back to last episode if you want a little more details, but it basically it's four different types of stories that may be seated within you know the larger plot of your narrative. So milieu, which is a location, inquiry, which is an investigation, character, which is about a character's arc, or event, which is about an event that drives the story. And slasher structure always puts event first. Slashers 
always start with a murder. So you see that bomb under the table. You understand what the stakes are. The slasher is the event. The character itself often doesn't have much of a personality. They are a driver of plot, really. They are an event. And so the slasher structure puts event first and ends with the event. It ends when the slasher is beaten or else is victorious. But as Halloween does it, Halloween has an ambiguous ending, but ultimately Halloween is about beating Michael Myers. Finally, Loomis confronts Michael Myers and defeats him. And we'll get to that a little more in just a second. So again, with the focus being on the event, it means that our characters often don't have much in the way of character arcs. And you do see this changing somewhat with more recent Halloween movies, more recent slashers, where they try to give the main character an arc. They try to make them more active, whether it's the Friday the 13th reboot um, made in, I think it was 2009, or the recent Halloween movies uh, with Jamie Lee Curtis and all the newcomers, all of her family members. They do try to add more depth to it, and I think often that pays off a lot. I really, I love the first movie in the new Halloween trilogy. I think it's just wonderful. Um, and is right up there with the original Halloween for me. But with these classic slashers, and with a lot of slashers in general, I think even to this day that you make, the characters themselves are in a holding pattern emotionally. They're n it's not really about how they change. Well, they really, so much of their change comes from their interaction with the slasher. And so it's the after effects where, you know, they really change. But we often don't see those after effects because that's not what the movie's about. The movie is about the event itself. It's about the slasher themselves coming to whatever small town, whatever camp, whatever location they're in, and raining hell, murdering people, and ultimately having a confrontation with our final girl, or boy, as they may be. But more often than not, it's, you know, a final girl, like the iconic Laurie Strode, who really, she wasn't the first, but she certainly popularized the trope. Often, our hero, our final girl, and the villain, the slasher, their true antagonist, will have an interaction fairly early on in the movie that ties them together, that creates a sense of destiny or fate between them. So even though they may not constantly face off throughout the movie like you might expect in like a superhero movie where, you know, Batman and the Joker face off or Superman and Lex Luthor, right? That's not how the hero and the villain of a slasher movie functions. It's the suspense of their confrontation. You know, once they confront each other, nothing will ever be the same, that that is the climax of the movie is the hero and the villain, the slasher and the final girl confronting one another. And so a lot of the suspense comes from that bomb under the table and is created by their initial interaction that ties them together through this sense of destiny, of course, which is just a larger, larger metatextual writer creating and building up the suspense of their interaction. Now, at the same time, suspense is raised by our, who you could define as our protagonist, if not our hero. He's not I would say our main character, but in Dr. Loomis, he may not be who we most emotionally connect to. He may not be the most relatable. He may not be the person we're most scared about, but he is the one who is actively pursuing someone. He's actively pursuing Michael Myers, and it creates a whole nother level of suspense where you have these interweaving plot lines. In Dr. Loomis's case, you know, it's an inquiry, right? Where is Michael? What is he doing? Is he going back to his childhood home? And so we follow Dr. Loomis as he tries to hunt down Michael Myers. And it, again, adds a level of suspense where we're waiting for the confrontation. And it all comes together in the climax, right? 
everything is building to that final confrontation with Laurie, Dr. Loomis, and Michael Myers. And so it all seeds together. You have these layers of suspense building on one another. Now, where that does create issues in the original Halloween, even in its wonderful just development of terror in the audience, is that the characters are often in a holding pattern. And the stakes themselves can be stagnant at times. So for Dr. Loomis, you know, for much of Act 2, he's just kind of walking around Haddonfield. The, the, the interesting scenes, the scenes that do kind of forward things is, okay, he goes to a graveyard and sees that Judith Myers, Michael's older sister, who he murders in the opening of the movie, that her tombstone has been destroyed, has been taken, in fact. Or he talks to the cops, and so we have now the cops are searching for Michael Myers and trying not to create a panic while they're doing that, you know, that there's this killer on the loose. And so there are some slight ways in which we're seeing a twisting of the story. We're seeing the stakes being raised. But a lot of it is just Loomis kind of walking around and just waiting to see, you know, where is Michael? When is Michael going to turn up? When is a dead body going to turn up, right? And giving us exposition, of course. I mean, that's a huge way that Dr. Loomis functions in building suspense. It's not just about his personal connection to Michael Myers, his personal connection to the ultimate conflict and the climax of the movie. It's also about him being there to give us exposition, which I think often gets a bad rap, but exposition is a way to build suspense, you know? By Dr. Loomis talking about how he worked with Michael, you know, for eight years as a child and tried to fix him and then spent seven years trying to make sure Michael never got out because when he looked in that child's eyes, he saw evil. That's all he saw. He saw no conscience. He just saw pure evil, evil itself. And by talking about all these things, you know, it adds layers and levels to the terror of Michael Myers. So even when we don't see Michael kill people, we have this dread building within us and he feels like that much bigger a threat. So again, it, it goes to kind of that classic idiom, you know, show don't tell. Well, do both. Don't do one or the other. Do both. When you tell about what a villain is capable of and you show it, they're that much scarier for it. One or the other is weaker for just doing, you know, that singular thing. Show and tell. And certainly often it is stronger to show than to tell. You know, it's scarier to see Michael kill someone than to talk about all the people he's killed. But if you do both, you can add layers to it, right? Like, Michael wouldn't be as scary if Dr. Loomis didn't talk constantly about how Michael is evil itself. It is that building of thematic coherence and the threat of Michael Myers that makes him so scary. I've long been searching for the perfect screenwriting software for me. And recently I came across Arc Studio Pro, which was the software used by the writers of the hit Netflix series Arcane, which we covered on a recent episode of Popcraft Screenwriting. Now I'm happy to announce that Arc Studio is sponsoring this episode of Popcraft Screenwriting. Arc Studio understands how screenwriters think. They've created screenwriting software that doesn't distract with an overloaded interface. You can say goodbye to archaic, screenwriting software, and hello to advanced story building features. It'll automatically format your script to the industry standard, and it provides stress-free collaboration tools that are as easy to use as Google Docs. Now, I mentioned that this software is already used by the writers of Arcane, but that's also true of the writer-director of Wet Hot American Summer and Role Models. So join them and the thousands of screenwriters who have already made the leap. Arc Studio Now is offering a completely free plan but you can also get $30 off the pro plan if you visit the link in the show notes below or just go ahead and type into your browser 
arcstudiopro.com slash popcraft. Again, that's arcstudiopro.com slash popcraft. Check it out. Now, Lori, like Dr. Loomis, is often in a holding pattern. And frankly, is, is in a complete holding pattern until nighttime hits. You know, there are a lot of repetitive beats of her just seeing Michael stalking her. And while these beats can be scary, they don't really raise the stakes, right? Like one or once or twice, her seeing Michael from afar, that's scary, right? That establishes the connection between them. But just following Michael stalking her throughout the movie is sort of, it's the same thing happening over and over. There's no twist in it. Lori sees Michael at school and he disappears. Okay, that's freaky. Lori sees Michael at her home. Okay, that's freaky. She's, you know, it's not like she's having any actual interactions with him. It's not like anything is changing that much beyond the location. And, and I think there's something to be said for the fact that she goes home and she's alone. And, you know, she starts to interact with her friends. You know, she sees Michael on the street and then he disappears when she's with her friends. They are slightly different scenarios, but ultimately, you know, I think you could do with probably not even necessarily trimming them, but finding ways to raise the stakes of those scenarios where Laurie sees Michael, where Michael is stalking her, and have something to twist the interactions more, you know, whether it be a friend actually interacting with Michael Myers, like when Tommy Doyle does. You know, Michael, of course, does not speak. We don't want him to speak. He'd be less scary if he speaks. But Tommy, the little boy that Laurie is ultimately going to babysit, actively runs into Michael Myers. And that's one of the scariest scenes early on in the movies. You're like, holy fuck, is Michael about to kill this little kid? Is he about to kill the bullies who are bullying Tommy? And then a knife falls out of Michael Myers' pocket. Again, raises the stakes. Now, we don't just see that Tommy is con like confronted with this killer, the slasher, but he actively, the slasher, has a weapon. The slasher, we see, is ready to kill again. And so what are some of the other ways that the movie raises the stakes? What are some other ways we can learn from how to increase the tension in our own stories? Well, we obviously talked about when Michael first imprints on Laurie, when they have their first interaction, and then initial stalking. Obviously, that is a good way to do it. We talked about Tommy and that interaction, and that, that physical confrontation, even as limited as it is, raises the stakes that things are that much more personal. Now a child is involved. We talked about the exposition that Loomis has, emphasizing how evil Michael is, how he is evil itself. But there are also more subtle ways that you can raise the stakes. Like when the girls, Lori's friends, talk about hooking up with guys. This is a subconscious thing, the way it plays on the audience, right? The audience saw that Michael killed his sister after she had sex with her boyfriend. So whether the audience is aware of it or not, when these teenage girls are talking about hooking up with their boyfriends or with, you know, guys they're into, when they talk about crushes, when they talk about sex, that subconsciously creates a seed in the audience where they're like, oh fuck, are they going to get killed after they have sex? Is this going to lead to them interacting with Michael? Is this going to lead to Michael deciding to kill them? And that itself creates suspense. That itself raises the stakes that we're Suddenly there's a new bomb under the table of, oh God, are these girls going to have sex? Are they then going to fall into Michael's path? Are they going to get killed? Which, of course, ultimately does happen and is ultimately the payoff and it's the whole point. Another way, another subtle way of building suspense, which you may or may not think about, is having nightfall. Nighttime. I mean, it's, it, there's a reason why most horror movies, the scares take place at night. Night is a time 
where human beings, we're just coded biologically to be more afraid because we can't see threats. Threats can hide in the darkness. And so by having nightfall on Halloween night, everything is that much scarier. We suddenly feel the stakes. We're like, oh shit, Michael's about to act. Michael's about to kill again. And lo and behold, he kills again. But it is really worth noting, Michael does not kill again, not that we see until late in the movie, well after the halfway point. And you know, the first person that Michael kills is not actually a person at all, but a dog. So Michael kills his sister at the start of the movie, and Michael doesn't kill anything until he kills a dog about two-thirds of the way through the movie. And that is another way to raise the stakes. It's not even a character, you know, it's not even a person that we see Michael kill next. It's the dog, but we know he's killing again. He's ready to kill more people. And then he does, and then the stakes are raised again when the teens start getting picked off one by one. And finally, the stakes reach a fever pitch when Lori walks into the house where Michael just killed her friends. Lori knows something is up, but she doesn't know what exactly. She's been talking to her friends on the phone all night. She knows they're there, but something's wrong. They're not answering her anymore. She's had these strange phone calls. So she goes across the street and lo and behold, she finds the bodies in this wonderful sequence of scares where... <laughs> You just get all the bodies at once. You get to see this horror show that Michael has put on, whether for the Lori or just people in general is left ambiguous. But, you know, you see the boyfriend like pinned to the wall. You see uh, the, the Judith Myers gravestone left on the bed. Like everything just adds up. You get all of these scares all at once. And it just is so fucking scary. It's so freaky. And it ups the stakes. You're in the climax of the movie. You know Lori is directly in Michael Myers' crosshair. He's stuck. She's stuck in a house with him. And she has a confrontation with him. She escapes. Everything is, you know, we're, we're in the third act. Everything, shit has hit the fan. And yet the stakes still are getting raised. Because she goes back into what should be a safe area for her. In her home. But now she's brought Michael to the children. You have the boy and the girl, the little boy, Tommy, the little girl whose name I, I can't recall. And now Michael could theoretically kill them. And so the stakes are at the highest there will ever be, where Lori is unarmed and alone with two little kids and Michael Myers in her house. And the phones are dead and no one is coming to help her. And so she has to deal with Michael Myers. Now, eventually, admittedly, someone does come help her. And that is the final confrontation and the end of the movie when Dr. Loomis appears and shoots Michael and saves Lori. And so all of the plot lines coalesced in this final battle, only for Michael to disappear once more, leaving us with a final bomb under the table. A bomb we know will go off again. And it has, like a dozen times now. However many Halloween movies have been made, Michael Myers always returns to kill again. And so you see when talking about this movie, how even though Laurie Strode may spend a lot of the movie just kind of going about her life, not really doing anything, not even pursuing a boy, like she's really inactive throughout the entire movie. And, you know, she's charismatic and is played so wonderfully by Jamie Lee Curtis. And you may have Dr. Loomis really not getting anywhere with finding Michael Myers, but we're still so invested because Michael is driving the plot that they are escalating the stakes. They are raising the stakes throughout the movie occasionally stumbling, occasionally just kind of remaining in a holding pattern, but largely escalating the tension. 
and focusing on suspense first and foremost. Focusing more on suspense than character development. More than that, than a, a twisty plot. You know, more than all these other ways in which people often try to write a story and focus and are taught, you know, this is what makes a good story. The slasher structure, Halloween, says no. You can make a movie just scary, first and foremost. And it will be compelling and enthralling to an audience for that. Well, I hope you enjoyed talking about what makes the slasher structure so interesting uh, and so unique and certainly something to learn from, uh, especially if you're interested in writing horror movies or thrillers. And I hope you have a happy Halloween. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of PopCraft. Hopefully a new segment next time. Maybe a guest, we'll see. Please check out all the socials linked below. I'll also link the script to Halloween. It's worth checking out. It's really interesting how they write about Michael as the shape. They don't even name him throughout much of the movie. There's, there's a lot of little details that you can learn from the Halloween script. Please consider donating to Patreon. Leave a review. Let everyone you know know about this podcast. I hope it is both informative and fun for you. And feel free to reach out to me via email if you want to. That said, I've been your host, Carl Albert. And this is Pop Craft.